0: Turn your Bibles, First Samuel chapter number thirty. First Samuel chapter thirty. I don't do very often what I'm going to do tonight, but I believe it'd be the will and mind of the Lord, uh, and that's to uh, finish the message we began this morning. Amen. Most of the time, we when we do something like that, I just move along. And uh, but I, I I really believe that uh, what we talked about this morning can only really be framed rightly when we when we uh, look at at the other half of it. Uh, to which you're probably thinking, well, preacher, you should have preached quicker this morning, amen. And uh, I, I would, I would grant you that, but uh, the that's why we've got a second service on Sunday, amen. So the preacher can finally get finished, said everything he's been trying to say. First Samuel chapter number 30, and uh, we will we will read our text and say a word about what we preached on this morning, just to make sure everybody uh, knows where we are at in the Word of God. And then there's a few things I want to say about what God did in the life of this Egyptian. Servant here in 1 Samuel chapter number thirty. Now I'd remind you the context of this passage: uh, the Philistine city of Ziklag that David and his men have been dwelling in uh, has been assaulted by the Amalekites. And the Amalekites have burnt the city of Ziklag. They have taken captive uh, David and his men, uh, their families, and uh, and all of their possessions, and have fled. And now David, having gained encouragement from the Lord, is uh, is is set. Uh, upon pursuing them and chasing down these Amalekites. So they're traveling down the road looking for this uh, band of Amalekite uh, raiders, this Amalekite army. And the Bible says in verse 11, as they were journeying that they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he did eat. And they made him drink water and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. When he had eaten, his spirit came again to him. For he had eaten no bread, nor drunk any water, three days and three nights. And David said unto him, To whom belongest thou? Whence art thou? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. My master left me, because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion upon the south of the Karathites, and upon the coast which belongeth to Judah, and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. David said to him, Canst thou bring me down to this company? And he said, Swear unto me by God that thou wilt neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master and I will bring thee down to this company. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this another opportunity to be in your house. I pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God would have liberty to minister this evening. I pray that everything that is said would be precisely what You desire to be said, that, Lord, we would not say anything that shouldn't be said or that we'd not shy away from saying what must be, that Your will and Your desires be fulfilled in our life. I pray that the precious Word of God would find a a home in our hearts tonight, that it would find fertile soil that You might be able to do an everlasting work and we'll be sure to thank you for what's accomplished. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we found ourselves in the book of 2 Samuel and in chapter 1. And we won't read that portion of Scripture. But I do simply want to mention to you a little bit about what we preached on this morning so that you understand why we find ourselves in the passage we're in tonight. We began this morning in this way that we desired to tell the story of two men. We find one of those men in our text from this morning over in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and then we find the other in the text that we read a moment ago in 1 Samuel chapter 30. One man was an Amalekite, and the other man, the one we read about tonight, was an Egyptian. One was a son, uh, that's the one we read about this morning, and then the one we read about tonight is a servant. One was found in deception. We'll say a word about that in a moment, but we preached on that man this morning. And then the other that we'll spend a little time examining tonight was found dying. Now these are some of their differences, but they also had some key similarities. For instance, both of these men were enemies of Israel by birth. One of them was an Egyptian, one of them was an Amalekite. Both of these peoples were historical oppressors of Israel. Not only that, they were Gentile strangers concerning the God of Israel. In other words, they found themselves in front of David and just who they were would have been enough for David to strike them down. Just the fact that they were Egyptians and Amalekites would have been all the reason that David needed to destroy them and to kill them and to be just in doing so. We talked about how that reminds us of ourselves in our lost condition. God didn't need any extra evidence, just who we were, how we was born into this world Our broken sin nature would have been enough to send us to hell. God would have been just in doing so. Somebody say amen right there. Then we also considered the fact that it is likely that both of these men were enemies of Israel in battle. Now we read clearly about it in the message or in the text tonight. The Egyptian says, plainly, boldly, says that I was there... Uh, when the amalekites burn ziklag now that's not what the fella said that we read about this morning over in second uh, samuel chapter Number one, he never says that. Instead, the way he says it is that he happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa where the battle was taking place between the Philistines and the Israelites. I'll remind you that it appears as though in a a very brief period of time there were two military campaigns and excursions that took place. Uh, That the Philistines were set in battle in array at Mount Gilboa against the Israelites. And the Amalekites, seeing that the Philistines were distracted had taken that as an occasion to sack and burn the Philistine city of Ziklag. And so Saul and Jonathan died in, in, in uh, the valley there by Mount Gilboa at the hands of the Philistines. And at the same time, the Amalekites are burning Ziklag, the city that David has been dwelling in. And now, two, three days later, all of this is transpiring. Uh, this fellow, though, this uh, son of an Amalekite, I find it highly suspect that he just happened to be at Mount Gilboa. You want my opinion, and of course that's why you came, right? No, not hardly, but uh, you, you want my opinion, and, I, and it's a pretty strong one about this. I, I believe that this man was involved in the burning of Ziklag. I believe he was one of the Amalekites that had been present there at Ziklag and had burned that city, and I don't think he just happened to be at Mount Gilboa. I think he was fleeing defeat and probably had gone to the battlefield uh, so that he could scavenge and try to steal whatever he could. And you say, well, what does that suggest to us, preacher? Well, it tells me this. Not only by their nature were they enemies of Israel, but also by their actions. Not just by birth, you listen to them, but by battle as well. Uh, The the lost man would say this. It's not my fault if I have been born lost. And that may be true. It it wasn't your choice to be born a sinner. But you sure sure made a lot of sinful choices since you was born. So have I. Amen? Uh, So we cannot claim any sort of ground when we suggest that. In spite of these similarities, though, these, both these men find themselves standing in front of David. This morning we talked about this son of an Amalekite standing there before the king. And then here in our text tonight, we find the Egyptians standing there before the king. Both of these men had similarities, had differences, but we notice that each man was dealt with in a different way by David. We've read enough of the text tonight. I don't think we're surprised anybody when we notice that David has spared this Egyptian man. And yet, the text we read this morning in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel tells us that David slew that son of an Amalekite in uh, chapter number 1. He destroyed him. He had him cut down. So that begs the question, why did he treat one so differently than the other? We preached this morning on the thought approaching the king. And I can just tell you very clearly why it is that David dealt with them differently. Because they each approached him in a different way. How you approach someone can make all the difference, Brother Ken, in how they respond to you. Now you say, preacher, that's good and everything. I appreciate the history lesson. What does that have to do with me? Well, can I remind you that every single person born in this world is going to one day stand before the king. And what he does with us is determined by what we've done with him and how we have approached unto him. The fellow in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel from this morning, he tried to gain the king's favor by merit. He approached unto him with a tall tale of how he had slain King Saul and how he had brought Saul's crown and bracelet, uh, his, his war, his arm ring unto David. David, when he hears the tale that is told, He uh, takes the man at his word and has him cut down and destroyed. We talked about why uh, David treated him that way and why uh, what he did did not work. And we named three things. I'll mention them to you very quickly. The first was that it was based on a foolish deception. Uh, This fellow tells his whole tale of how he was present there when Saul uh, was uh, dying and how that he assisted and aided in Saul's death. But the problem is the Holy Ghost tells us that man's a liar. Because we read in the chapter that sits in between our text tonight and our text from this morning, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 31 exactly how Saul died. And he did not die from this uh, Amalekite uh, leaning upon him and slaying him, but rather the Bible tells us he died because he fell upon his own sword. This fellow came under false pretenses and he lied... And here's uh, one of the statements that we made this morning. You know, the problem with a person trying to get to heaven through their merit, trying to stand before the king through their own good works, is that they have to lie to do so. They have to tell a lie. What's the lie they have to tell? Well, we noted a few of them. One, he had lied about where he had been. He said he happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa. That wasn't true. Uh, The reason he was where he was was because of what he had done and the choices He had made. You know, a person that says they're going to get to heaven through their own good works will often suggest that whatever moral failures they have are simply the product of their circumstances. Can I tell you this? Moral failings are not the product of circumstances. They're the product of sin. Now, that's not to suggest that I'm not a sinner and you're not a sinner. and It's not to suggest we don't sin. But it is to say this, that we ought to just go ahead and just own what we've done wrong and not suggest that we are the product of our circumstances or environment. So he lied about where he had been. He lied about what he had seen. Uh, we noted a couple of uh of of distinct lies in the story that he told. One, when well, he says that when he sees Saul that Saul is leaning upon his spear, he's resting upon his spear. In other words, he had the idea that Saul was resting because he was weary, and that's why uh the Philistines had caught up with him. He said w- we put it this way, he claimed to see the king fatigued. And he claimed that the reason that the king died was because he was weary And because he was tired. Now, the Holy Ghost tells us over in chapter number 31, that's not what happened. What happened was Saul was wounded by the archers. And uh, because of that, he could not continue on because of his wound. And we we made this statement this morning that uh, he looked at him and said he saw the king weary and tired. That's not the truth. The truth was the king was wounded for our transgressions. When a person is trying to get to heaven through their own good works, they dismiss and disregard uh, the wounded Savior. Uh, They make it seem as though Calvary was merely the product of the failure of his life, the tragic end to a beautiful life, that he died as a martyr. But listen, friend, he didn't die as a martyr. He died as a victor. And when he died on the cross, it was not because he was weary or weak. It was because he was wounded for our transgression. And then number two, he claimed to see the king forfeit. He said that there was nothing wrong with Saul... And yet Saul, because he did not want to fall into the hands of the Philistines, uh, asked this uh, Amalekite to kill him. That's not what happened. Now it is true that Saul wanted uh, someone to take his life, but the reason was not because he was simply afraid of the Philistines, but rather because he was dying anyway, and he didn't want to be made mockery of by the Philistines. Saul wasn't afraid to die, he was trying to die. Uh, he had fought to the bitter end, and only when wounded uh, mortally and knowing he would die did he fall on his sword. And, uh, the person trying to get to heaven through their good works, they make it seem, they, they disregard the whole reason for which Christ came to this earth. They make it seem as though in dying on the cross, he was dying as a failure. But listen, when he died on the cross, he died as a success. He died having done the will of the Father. He didn't die because he was given up. He died because he was winning the battle. Somebody say amen there. And, uh, it disregards the very reason that he came and what he accomplished, Christ dying on the cross, is proof that a man can't achieve righteousness through good works and that he needs a Savior. Well, I like how Paul said it. He said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And then we talked about how he lied about what he had done. He said all he was doing was trying to help Saul. All he was doing was trying to accomplish Saul's desires. And that sounds how a lost man trying to get to heaven through his good works. Sounds like the kind of thing you'd say. I'm just doing what God wants me to. I'm just doing a good deed day by day. I'm just trying to uh, be a good neighbor, Brother Charlie, and help other people. Listen, God wants us to do good deeds. He wants us to be a good neighbor, but don't none of that mean anything if we've not had the blood of Christ applied to our lives. So, we talked about the fact that it was based on a foolish deception. We talked about how it was rooted in a false perception. He made some assumptions about David. He he thought that he would be met with rejoicing, thought David would be pleased with what he was done. But David was not. He was grieved at the death of Saul and Jonathan. He thought he would be met with regard. He thought David would be impressed by what he did. Thought that David would be would be awed by his wisdom. And by his loyalty. And the unrepentant sinner, they think God's gonna be real impressed by what they do. Sadly, that is just simply not the case. And he thought he would be met with reward. He thought that, uh, David would look at him and say, well now I'm gonna welcome you into my family and I'm gonna crown you and I'm gonna, uh, gift things to you and I'm gonna do. And, you know, I really believe, Brother Ken, most people trying to work their way to heaven, they believe they're succeeding. In fact, I don't know that I've ever met a man that thought he was getting to heaven by his good works that didn't think he was making it. Uh, Isn't that interesting? It's like you never meet a Calvinist that's got unelected kids. You don't. You never meet somebody that's Calvinist whose kids ain't elect, whose kids ain't a part of the group. I'd say there's a little bit of confirmation bias there, wouldn't you? You'll never meet a man trying to work his way to heaven that isn't making it. They always think they are making it. They'll never say they're perfect, but they'll always think that they are making it. Well, this fella, he thought he was making it. He thought he would be rewarded. Sadly, that was not the case because we see that it was met with a fatal reception. I ain't preaching yet. You stick with me. It was met with a fatal reception. We spoke about the suddenness of his death. There was no trial. He was struck down immediately. David says that he had been condemned by the words of his own mouth. We talked about how the lost man trying to work his way to heaven, he's not waiting to find out if he got in. It's already been decided he didn't. He's condemned already, the Bible says. So we talked about the suddenness of his death. We talked about the sentence of his death. I thought this was interesting. Uh, But Jim, he died for what he did not do. He did not kill Saul, but he died for killing Saul. And you say, well, what does that have to do with us today? Well, it reminds me of this, that the sinner... It's not what the sinner does. It's what he does not do that sends him to hell. The unrepentant sinner does not go to hell because he's done wrong things. He's done unrighteously. The Bible tells us that the reason a man dies and goes to hell is because he's not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's not what he does that sends him to hell. It's what he does not do. Now, that's not to say he is not guilty for what he does, but it's to say that that guilt is not uh, mandatorily keeping him out of heaven. We're all guilty. Heaven's full of guilty people. It's been saved by the grace of God. So he died for what he did not do. And then we talked about how he died for what he uh, claimed to do. Why was what he did so egregious? And we named three things. It's egregious because uh, David says that he has he has uh, lifted out his hand. Let's see how David said it exactly. He said, he stretched forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. David was highly offended by that. It's a reminder that God's offended by a man trying to get to heaven through his own good works. For these three reasons, to depend on our works is, uh, is to suggest, number one, that Christ is insufficient. That what He did on the cross wasn't enough. And it needs, in addition to His sacrificial death, it also needs our good works. Well, of course that would be offensive. Uh, I would say this, that uh, trying to get your way to heaven through good works, trying to work your way to heaven, is the equivalency of a passive-aggressive attitude towards God. It's to say, God, let me help you with what you're doing wrong. Let me help you with where you're not getting it right. And then it's to suggest that the cross is unnecessary. If we could get our way to heaven through our good works, if we could work our way to heaven, why did He go to the cross? Why did He die for our sins? Wouldn't you think God be smart enough to not send His Son to die on the cross and it would all be a waste of time and a waste of energy? And then it's to suggest that grace is unwanted. That God, in extending His grace to us, uh, to say, I'm going to make it through my good works, is to say, no, thank you, Lord. I don't want your grace. I don't need your grace. I'll make it on my own. But you know, I think this morning, in all of the preaching that we did, the one thing I wish I could have said more about, and I'll get to say more about it tonight, was the very last thing, for the kin that we talked about. We talked about the suddenness of this man's death and the sentence of this man's death. But then in closing this morning, we talked about the senselessness of his death. You know, the great tragedy of this man's death is that it didn't have to happen. He did not have to die that day and he did not have to die that way. He would have just come to David as he was, admitted who and what he was, David would have pardoned him. Now, somebody's going to say, and maybe you won't, we've already read our text tonight, but I think we would be apt to say, preacher, there's no way David would pardon a man that had burnt the city of Ziklag. There's no way David would pardon a man that had been part of that assault that had helped take captive David's uh, wives and David's children and all David's goods. There's no... Listen, you're underestimating the kindness of the king. I said, you're underestimating the kindness of the king. Because in the Holy Ghost-inspired Word of God, but Charlie, we have a record of him doing that very thing. Can I draw your attention to this fact? Before David ever slew the Amalekite, he saved the Egyptian. Can I tell you this tonight? Hey, listen, we don't have to wonder if God will save the sinner. There's plenty of proof God will save the sinner if the sinner will approach unto him under God's terms in the way that God desires, in the appropriate way, there's no reason, no matter how dark their sin may be, no matter how atrocious their past may be, there's no reason God can't and won't pardon them and change their life. You see, this morning we talked about the Amalekite that tried to gain the king's favor by merit. But tonight let's take just a moment of our time Let's notice the Egyptian who indeed gained the king's favor, but he did not gain it by merit, he gained it by mercy. What can we say about this Egyptian man? Well, the Word of God really gives us all the information that we need to know about him. We do not know his name, we don't know anything really about his family, we only know this, we know of his nationality, we know of his station in life, and we know how he wound up in this field for David's men To find him. We know that he was the servant of an Amalekite. He was abandoned by his master because he fell sick. Uh, We know that he was not a rich man. He was not a wealthy man. He was not a powerful man. We might say it this way. This fellow was a nobody. I'd say this, Brother Ken, that probably that 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 old boy we talked about this morning had more going for him than this fellow had going for him. That man this morning was the son of an Amalekite. Now, I don't know uh, exactly who that man was, but the Bible tells us that when David and his men pursued after these men that had burnt Ziklag, and they caught up with them, that there was 400 young men that had escaped on camels. I think it's possible that this fellow that winds up in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, at David's uh, presence, is one of these young men that escaped on a camel. Now listen, we may think of a camel like a two-door car, like everybody He's got one. But in that day, it was not just anybody that had access to livestock and animals. It would suggest that this uh, young man had at least some means in his life. But this fellow that we're reading about here tonight, man, he was a nobody. He didn't even live in in the country with his family. He had been captured. He had been sold. He had been bought. And now he found himself as a slave of an Amalekite. Notice a few things with me. First, I want you to consider with me this man's condition. Listen to what the Bible tells us, three things. Number one, the Bible tells us he was an Egyptian. Verse 11 says, "...they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David." Now, if you had been in Egypt, that would have meant something, but they weren't in Egypt. So being an Egyptian did not curry him any favor or any significance amongst his peers and amongst his companions. However, it is instructive to me tonight because, you know, when I read my Bible, I find there are certain places, Brother Charlie, in the Bible that are always significant. They always have a meaning associated with them. Jerusalem uh, is a good example of that. Bethlehem is an example of that. And Egypt in the Bible is associated with certain things. Egypt is always a picture in the Bible of sin and the world. Always. The Bible, every time the Bible talks about somebody going to Egypt, don't matter where they were on the map, don't matter where they were relative to sea level, they always went down into Egypt. Abraham went down into Egypt. Isaac went down into Egypt. Everybody always went down into Egypt. I think it was the Holy Ghost way of reminding us that a move to Egypt was a move downward. Whenever the children of Israel were in bondage, they were in bondage in the land of Egypt, in a pagan land. God had to break the back of uh, supernatural darkness and miraculous uh, demonic power to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It is a place associated with darkness and wickedness and iniquity, and it's where this fella called home. It's a reminder of the condition of the lost sinner. Uh, listen, we may try to paint up the lost sinner. We may try to dress up the lost sinner. We may try to use psychoanalysis to explain away the conditional lost sinner. But at the end of the day, he's just a, a slave that was born in darkness. And has no means to break the shackles off of his own wrists. This man was an Egyptian. That made him an enemy of the people of Israel. Uh, it, it's entirely possible that his ancestors were some of them that held the whips uh, that f- fell on the back of David's ancestors. We do not know. But we know this, that in that moment, in that time, whenever David said, where are you from? Uh, I'm sure it took a little bit of nerve for that fellow to say, well, I'm an Egyptian. It was not a desirable uh, association for him to have in his life. And yet the Bible tells us that's who he was. He was a man that in that moment had no standing because his people were associated with wickedness, with idolatry, with ungodliness, and with opposition to the God of Israel. You know, the first real opposition that the God of Israel displayed as a natural God was against the gods of Egypt. That was the first showdown between false gods and the true God uh, in the Bible that's really dealt with at length. And this fellow, he was an Egyptian. So I noticed that, number one. Number two, I noticed this, that he was not only an Egyptian. Brother Ken, I noticed he was empty. You say, what do you mean? Well, look down at verse number 11. The Bible says that when they found this fellow, in verse number 11, that they brought him to David. And what did they do? They gave him bread, and he did eat, and they made him drink water. They gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. When he had eaten, his spirit came again to him. Here's why. For he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. I'm going to be honest with you. I go three hours and I start feeling it. (laughs) This fellow had been three days and three nights with nothing. So much so they had to be cautious in what they no doubt gave to him. When they found him, they found him not only was he an Egyptian, so he should have been condemned to die by virtue of that, but they found him and he was empty. His master had not been taking care of him. Listen now. His master had not been taking care of him. And he was empty inside. You know, that's really the situation of every lost sinner. They may try to suggest that they're living life to the fullest and enjoying it, but every once in a while, the world will show its cards just a little bit. We'll see one of these high-profile people. I'm talking about the very pinnacle of their uh, vocation and of their work and of of, uh, success in public life, Brother Kent. They'll get to the very top of the mountain and can't handle it. And will sadly take their own life. You look at how this world's best and brightest conduct themselves. Uh, their marriages cannot survive. They are unstable. Uh, half of them, listen, are on uh, so many pills and so many uh, therapist couches that they can't keep count. Uh, they're broken inside. They're struggling inside. They're trying to find some kind of peace and some kind of happiness. Very often they see the world in its brokenness and cannot cope with it. Uh, the world tries to blame it on fame. The world tries to blame it on abuse. But I can tell you exactly why those people are as unhappy as they are, because they've turned away from the god of their creation and they are empty inside and they more than most people sense that emptiness i think the common man very often distracts themselves with hope and delusion and they say to themselves if i just had another zero on the end of my paycheck uh with charlie then i'd be happy but you see those men have all the zeros on the end of their paychecks they could want and they're still not happy there's nowhere else for them to run I think they think to themselves and say to themselves, well, if I just uh, had a a little bit more uh, prominence or power or fame, then I would be happy. But those people have all the prominence and power and fame and advancement that a man could want, and it's not enough for them. I think when they get to that place, there's nowhere to hide, Brother Fred. And they have to admit that they're empty inside. You know why the lost person is not satisfied? It's not because he's not doing it right. It's not because he's not doing life right. It's because he himself is empty inside. So I noticed that he was empty. And then I noticed this. Number three, he was expiring. Verse number 12 says this, When he had eaten, his spirit came again to him. That seems to suggest that when they first found this man, that he was at the point of perishing. In other words, we could say it this way, he was dead already. seems to be how the Scripture implies it. His spirit came again into him. Uh, only heaven will reveal what all the details of that are, and it may be nothing more than just meaning His vitality, but certainly it reminds us of the condition of a lost sinner. Uh, I, I remember hearing a preacher say one time, and it has stuck with me ever since, and I, it might have been B.R. and somebody made the statement one time, said that God's main contention with a lost man is not that He's immoral, uh, it's not that He's not a church-going person, It's not that he's not well versed in the Bible or in the truth of the Word of God. The the contention that God's always had with the lost man is that he's dead and he needs new life. That he's dead and a dead person can't have communion and fellowship and meaning and worth, at least not in the present reality that their deadness exists in. The, The most vital truth that we can relay to a lost sinner really has nothing to do with their morality but it has to do with their state of existence. That the life that they live is not really life the way that God intends it. To just muddle your way through this life, hoping to make it from daylight to dusk, to make it from one calendar day to the next. There's people that that is their existence. They see no greater meaning. They see no greater purpose. They could never imagine there's a God in heaven that loves them, that has a plan for their life. They're just going from one distraction uh, and one delusion to the next. They are dead men walking. And that's who this man was. He was dying. It's a reminder, too, that the lost person, listen, he wasn't just he wasn't just dying. We're all dying. You might be dying quicker than me, or you might be dying slower than me. We're all dying. But I'd say this this man was getting ready to die. He was just, with Fred, had to be just a few hours maybe at most away from being dead. I don't mean sort of dead. I mean dead dead. As such, it's a reminder that the lost sinner is ever on the cusp. This is true, by the way, of us saved folk too. We're ever on the cusp of walking out of this life and into eternity. On Friday, we had senior saints meeting. And um, after senior saints, a bunch of us kind of Stayed so we could put up tables and uh, get things set up, and and some of y'all that are in this room, you was over there. We was putting up tables and sort of you know uh, fussing and fighting where we put them and this and that, and and uh, you know how many chairs go around this one, and go around that one, and you know it's just a Friday. Down here at the corner of Pleasant Ridge and Shaw, there's two people whose vehicles hit head on, and one of them moved out into eternity in whatever condition they died in. That's how they met God. Now that's a sobering thought, Brother Fred. We stand around here just putting up tables, not thinking about nothing. But where are we going to put these tables? And And a mile or two down the road, somebody left this life and went into eternity. They left time and stepped into the presence of a thrice holy God. We're all just right on the edge. You understand that, right? Man, it could be today. It could be tomorrow. That's a sobering thought to me. You know what's even more sobering? We know about that one because it was a vehicle wreck and it made it on the evening news. And that's why I know about it. That's why I heard about it. But Brother Ken, every day in Knox County, every day, every day, you spend time, and of course, none of us do it right now with all this COVID stuff, but you spend time in enough hospitals like I have, and you know that death is an ever-present reality. The lost man is always just a moment. So too, my friend, is us saved folk. Uh, we might leave this place and not this might be, be your last church service. I said, this might be your last church service. Are you ready to meet God? Are you ready? This ain't got nothing to do with an Egyptian or, or, or clusters of raisins or figs or pieces of cake. But I believe the Lord's on this. Are you ready to meet God with your life in the shape that it's in right now? Because it could be you or me. This could be the last church service we ever sit in. The very last one. One of these days, your your next church service will be your last church service. Your next service, your next sermon will be your last sermon. My next sermon will be my last sermon one of these days. We ready to meet God? This fellow was right on the edge of expiring. So I see his condition. Now, God could have left him like that. David could have left him like that. By the way, nobody would have blamed David. Nobody would have blamed David if his men had walked by this fellow and looked down and said, who are you? And he said, I'm servant to an Amalekite. And they put an arrow right through his head. Nobody would have thought a thing about it. But you know, God doesn't just do what He has to. God doesn't just do what He has to. Some of us, we just do what we have to. God doesn't just do what He has to. God does what He gets to. And as such, David's men picked this fellow up and carried him into the presence of David. And they gave him some things. But Ken, I'm interested in what they gave him. I notice not only his condition, I notice his consolation. They comforted him. They gave him some things to be a help to him. And it reminds me of the gifts that God has given uh, each and every one of us. Number one, he was given loaves. The Bible says that they gave him bread and he did eat. We're getting ready at the end of this month to observe the Lord's Supper. We always pay a lot of attention to that grape juice. And we don't pay an awful lot of attention to that bread. I don't know why that is. I guess we just something about that that red grape juice, it it just reminds us of the blood. It's something we notice. But you know, listen, He didn't just give His blood for us. He gave His body for us. And it's a reminder to me that, listen, the Lord Jesus gave His life for each and every person, for you and for me. The Lord died for this Egyptian. Uh, and uh, as he's sitting there eating that bread, I don't know if he realized it, but we can after, after all this time and after a, 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 a finished Bible and the, and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, surely we can look at this passage and see that this fellow in his broken condition, what did he need? In his dying condition, what did he need? In his lost condition, what did he need? He needed the loaves of bread. He needed the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He needed the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I say the greatest need? Before they gave him anything else, they gave him the loaves. Before they gave him anything else, they gave him the loaves. A lost man, before he needs baptism, he needs the blood. Before he needs church membership, he needs the blood. Hey, before he needs self-reformation, he needs the blood. Uh, He can have all those other things, and if he don't have the blood, if he don't have the broken body, it's of no effect. Won't matter. Six seconds after death, none of those things will mean anything without the loaves. So I see He was given loaves. And number two, I see He was given liquid. The Bible says they made Him drink water. Now what does water remind us of in the Bible? Well, there's two things, Brother Fred, that water is associated with in the Bible. When water is used to wash things, it's a picture of the Word of God. The Bible tells us that we have been washed with the Word of God. when When it's washing something, it's a picture of the Word of God. But now when it's used for drinking water, it's always a picture of the Holy Ghost. Now there may be a place where there's a deviation of that pattern, but I've never seen it, Brother Charlie. Every time that I have seen water being used to drink, it's had some kind of connection to the Holy Ghost. And every time it's used to wash, it seems to always have some connection to the Word of God. And it's a reminder to me that when God deals with the man, I don't just mean when he saves a man. I mean a person don't even know they're lost until the Spirit of God has showed them that they're lost. And that has nothing to do with some emotional appeal. It has nothing to do with some impulsion or compulsion. But it has to do with the fact that you can can look at a lost person you can tell them the facts all day long and it won't mean anything to them until the Spirit of God opens their heart and makes them realize, man, that's the truth. I've shared my testimony a hundred times. And I won't take a lot of time tonight in doing it, but I'll just mention this. I was raised in a Bible-believing home. I was raised hearing the gospel every single week of my life. But when I was ten years old on December 1st, 1997, it's like the Holy Ghost of God made it real to me. You know why it was like that? Because that's how it was. He made it real to me. I knew it! I could have said it back. I was like these kids that are being raised in children's church and hearing good gospel teaching and preaching every week. They know the facts! I knew the facts, but it didn't make any impact upon me yet. Not until the Lord made me realize, man, it was real. It was real and it was about me. (laughs) Not about somebody else, it was about me. It's when the Spirit of God made me aware. But then it's a reminder that when a person gets saved, God indwells them and invests them with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God indwells them, takes up residence in their life. They become the temple of the living God. And that's exactly what happens when a person gets saved. How does God get them out of the mess that they're in? And that's what you see is, is this pattern here. How did God take lost folks and get them into the family of God? Well, the first thing He did was gave them Jesus to die on the cross. The second thing is He gave the Spirit of God to convict them and to show them their need. And then I notice this. Not only did they give them liquid, they gave him luxuries. The Bible says they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. Now, a man can live with a kin off bread and water. He don't have to have figs, raisins. I don't like figs. My daddy ate fig Newtons all growing up. And he used to say, you want one? And I said, yes, one time. And that was enough. I'm not a fig person. But I will say this, certainly in that time, that part of the world... A fig was a luxury. In other words, they didn't just give him, I, I said this a moment ago, they didn't just give him what they had to give him. They gave him the best that they had. You know, the Bible tells us this in the New Testament, the book of Romans, that it's the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance. You know, but Ken, God is so good that not only does he Not only does He give us Christ that died on the cross for us, not only does He give us the the Word of God that shows us we're lost, not only does He give us the Spirit of God that makes a reality of that Word in our hearts and engrafts it into our lives, but He also gives the lost man more than he could ever deserve of goodness and of grace to show him that indeed the God that sits on the circle of the earth does love him and is interested in him. And then after he had done all this, the Bible says when he had eaten... His spirit came again to him. He was given life. The goal of this whole thing, what God's trying to do in the heart of a lost person is to give them life. Uh, not, not, no, I didn't say to give them learning, to give them life. Not, not to, not to give them relationships, to give them life. Not to give them a church home, to give them life. All those things may come later, and I'm not against a single one of them. But I'm telling you, that's not what He came for. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He said, I am come that they might have life, and life more abundant. That's what God's desiring to do. So what did this man do then? We understand that in the typology of the passage before us, because we're dealing with a physical death and a physical revival and and, and all these things, that maybe there's some elements that might take place in the story in a little bit different order than they would. In the life of a sinner. But I think that as we look at this passage, he couldn't really but do nothing till he was given life. He couldn't really do nothing till he was woke up. But when he wakes up, he does exactly what a sinner is supposed to do in coming to God. Notice his confession. Look at verse 13 with me. The Bible says that David said unto him, To whom belongest thou? And whence art thou? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant. To an Amalekite. Can I say this? The real fundamental question of a man's life is to whom belongest thou? To whom? Who do you belong to? Who is your master? Who tells you what to do? Who governs your life? That's what he asked this man. To whom belongest thou? The fellow could have lied. After all, that Amalekite lied about almost everything. But this Egyptian man does not lie. Notice, number one, he confessed his affiliation. He didn't try to hide where he had been or what he had done. He just went ahead and got honest with David and admitted. You know, part of the reason could have been why he did that. You may disagree with this, but I'll tell you why I think part of the reason he did that was. I think he probably thought to himself, you know, I was dead anyway. I was dead anyway. If, if I die... It's not that big of a deal, cause I was dead anyway. You know why a person gets honest with God? Cause they know they're dead anyway. You know why a person lies to God? Cause they're under the delusion that they can live without Him. This man was honest with God. Why? He was dying anyway. So he might as well just tell the truth to David. He might as well admit to the king who and what he was, and he admitted freely. What his affiliation was. He said, I'm an Egyptian. And if that means you're going to kill me, I guess you just need to kill me because that's who and what I am. You know, a person gets born again, the first thing they have to do is admit their affiliation. They have to admit they're a sinner. They have to admit they're lost, that they need the Savior. The Lord will help us here in a few weeks. I want to preach about a man named Ahimaaz. Uh, later on in uh, 2 Samuel, he was a fellow that wanted to run and give news to David on the day that uh, David's enemies were slain, but also on the day that David's son was killed. He wanted to go and bear tidings, but he only wanted to tell half the story. He wanted to tell the good news, but he didn't want to tell the bad news. That's how a lot of Christians are today. They want to tell the good news, but they don't want to tell the bad news. They want to tell people that God loves them, but they don't want to tell people that they're lost sinners in need of a Savior. The gospel's good news and it's bad news. It's bad news before it's good news. And it's such good news that once it's good news, the bad news don't matter anymore. But you've got to have both sides to it for it to be meaningful, for it to have an effect. We've got to get honest with God, and that's exactly what this man does. He says, I'm an Egyptian. I deserve to die. Uh, so he admits his uh, affiliation. Number two, he confessed his actions. He says in verse 14, We made an invasion upon the south of the Karathites and upon the coast which belongeth to Judah and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. He, he, he's hesitant to say it, but he says there's no way around it, so I might as well just admit it. David, I was part of that group. I was part of that crowd that burnt your house, that took your family, that offended and transgressed you. Well, what a picture of when a sinner gets honest with God. What it takes. What kind of honesty. We're, we're getting ready to start election season. Can I remind you there's different types of honesty? Like there's political honest. And then there's like real honest. And then there's like marital honest. Like, you know, is, is dinner good? Do I look good in this? Whatever. There's marital honest. But, but then there's, there's spiritual honest say, so what's spiritual honest? Spiritual honest is honest. You've got to come down to, I'm talking about honest. Nobody's ever got help from God that wouldn't tell the truth to God. That's the first prerequisite of getting help. I'm talking to saved folks. I know this is Sunday night here in the uh, the, the buckle of the Bible bell. I understand that, so let me just go ahead and tell you. I'm even talking to saved people now. Ain't nobody ever got help from God that wouldn't get honest with God first. You've got to go ahead and tell God Admit to God. Not because God don't know, because He needs you to know. And He needs your flesh to know. There's been things that I've known that my flesh didn't know. You say, preacher, how's that possible? Well, some of you all know what I'm talking about. You've got out and done stuff you didn't have no business doing and woke up the next day so sore you couldn't move. You knew it, but your flesh didn't know that you was not in shape enough to do that. You know something your flesh not know it. And why does God make us confess things to Him? To make sure our flesh knows it. To make sure, in other words, that we are honest and forthright in what we've done wrong. This fellow, it must have been hard for him to say, but if he's going to get help, he had to say it. He had to admit it. He had to acknowledge it. He had to say it in the ears of, uh, of the King, that He had been the one that had burned Ziklag. A person won't ever get help from God until they're willing to admit and acknowledge that they're the one. Like Nathan looked at David when he told the parable of the sheep. He looked at him and he said, David, thou art the man. That's when David got help. David said, you're right, Nathan. I am the man. I'm the one that has done it. I'm the one that is guilty. The blood is on my hands. The lost man won't get saved until his sin quits becoming relative. Quits becoming relative and becomes Relevant. Part of the problem in modern gospel preaching is that all that they endeavor to get a lost man to acknowledge is the relative badness of his sin. In other words, to say, well, they're not as good as somebody else. I'm not telling you you ain't as good as somebody else. I'm telling you ain't you ain't as good as nobody else. I ain't as good as nobody else. I'm talking about our bet listen, our, our our attempts at righteousness are but filthy rags. I'm talking about our best 30 seconds is enough to send us to hell. I'm not talking about relative. I'm talking about it's relevant. This man had to admit he wasn't just he had done a few bad things in his life. Man, he he was the one that had burned Ziklag. He was the one that had directly offended and transgressed the king. And until a man gets that honest, he won't get help with God. He won't get help from God until he's willing to admit, I have offended and transgressed God. My sins. I am lost and need to be born again. Uh, I see he he declared and professed and proclaimed and confessed his actions. And by the way, in your life and mine, that's the reason some of us ain't getting help. I said that's the reason some of us ain't getting help. We come right up to the edge of getting help, then we don't. Why is that? Because we come right up to the edge of getting honest with God and then we back up. We, 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 we chicken out. We grow cowardly. We don't have the stomach to call our sin. We have the stomach to commit our sin, but we don't have the stomach to confess our sin for what it is. And we ain't gonna get help from God until we're willing to confess our sin to be what it is. In the eyes of a thrice holy God, we've gotta call it what it is. We gotta get honest with God if we're gonna get help. Until we want, until we'll do that, we're just playing games. And that's the reason you'll see folks get right up on the edge of help, but not get help. It's because they come right up to that point and they just ain't got stomach to admit that they've done what they said, what they know that they've done and to get honest with God. So he confessed his actions. I I thought this was interesting. Me and Brother Tim talked about this a little bit this morning. He confessed his agony. Notice what he said. He said, I am servant to an Amalekite. Now, lay this in juxtaposition to that fellow in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. He's the son of an Amalekite. But you know, the Bible tells us in the New Testament in the book of Galatians that when a son is young, he differeth nothing from a servant. The difference has to do with coming into the realization of your responsibilities. And he say, what does that mean as we read this Egyptian? Well, it tells me this. He was keenly aware that he was doing what that Amalekite told him to do because he had to do it. But a son serving his father is doing so just as the Lord Jesus did, is doing so because he's in agreement with and wants to please his father. You know that Amalek in the Bible is always a picture of the flesh? These three kingdoms, Ammon, Moab, and Amalek, seem to always be figurative of the role of the flesh in the life of a believer. They are the ever-present thorn in the side of and and an ever-present combative force in the life of the children of Israel. Now, let's stop and think about that for a minute. One fellow says, I'm the son of an Amalekite. Or well, we might say this, the folks that won't get help from God, they treat it as though they have a family, familial, friendly relationship with the flesh. In other words, I'm doing what I'm doing because I want to do it. But you know, when a person really gets help from God, and particularly when a lost sinner gets born again, that, that dynamic changes They don't think of it like I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm living how I'm living because I enjoy it. But instead, like this Egyptian, he says, I'm a servant to an Amalekite. I don't want to live this way. You listening? I don't want to live this way. But the Master will crack the whip on me. You know, when a lost person gets born again, and by the way, I'm not saying a lost man articulate all this the way that I'm saying it. I'm not saying he'd express it in that way. But I am saying he would have an awareness that he's living in a certain way that he don't want to live anymore. Living in a way he don't want to live anymore. <laughs> just a servant, just a bond slave to sin and unrighteousness. Don't want to live that way anymore. Want help, want to get out. You know, there's some folks don't get help because they don't want help. And they don't have nerve enough to tell you they don't want help. So they'll tell you they want help, but all the while, every time help is offered, they never take that help. What's a man to think except that they don't? want help there's some people want you to think they want help that don't want help let me say this as it relates to spirituality and i was probably talking about more than just spirituality but as it relates to spirituality a man's got to want help to get help a man's got to want his life to change for his life to change god's never saved anybody against their will he's never made a man get born again That person has to choose. They have to start to decide that they don't want that life anymore. They don't want that brokenness anymore. They don't want that iniquity anymore. They want a new life in Christ Jesus. He confessed his agony, but then I noticed he confessed his abandonment. How did he get there? Well, three days earlier he had felt sick. Uh, It doesn't say it in the Bible, but if if you read the commentators, they tell me he got tested positive for COVID. He, he fell sick. The Bible says that, that his master left him because he wasn't worth saving. That's how his old master felt about him. I can't get anything else out of you. I'll just leave you to die in this field. You know, most of the time, with Fred, a person don't get saved until they start to see the devil for what he is. A liar from the beginning. I, I love the way the Bible, the Bible gives us in the book of Revelation, gives us a three-fold title. I'm going to preach on this at some point. A three-fold title to the devil. You know what it calls him in the same passage? It calls him the devil, Satan, and calls him that old serpent. That old serpent. You know, by the time we roll down to the end of, of, uh, of the millennial reign, Brother Charlie, the world's going to see the devil for what he is. They're going to understand exactly who and what he is. You know, a person, they typically don't trust in the Lord as their Savior until they're willing to admit that they that the devil ain't never done a thing for them. He just used and abused them in the moment that he couldn't get anything else out of them. Just left them there, lying, dying in the middle of a field. By the way, all all of us saved folks here tonight, you know, we ain't going to get help until we're going to admit just exactly that the devil ain't got a thing for us. Until we're willing to admit that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. So why do we keep indulging the flesh? God, the Holy Ghost, said in it dwelleth no good thing. Some of y'all had parents used to say to you when you was growing up, ain't nothing good goes on after 10 o'clock at night. Right? Except watch night services. Somebody say amen to that. And even a lot of them ain't good. (laughs) But can I tell you something? nothing good goes on in your flesh. Anything you do in the flesh ain't good. Brother Charlie, in in your flesh dwelleth no good thing. You can't find a good thing in there. If you've dug something out of your flesh, I'm talking about doing things under your own energy, under your own authority, in your own way, and in your own strength. Let me save you the trouble and tell you it ain't going to work out good. Because in your flesh dwelleth no good thing. It's always going to wind up bad. Only in the new man and only in in the jurisdiction and authority of God's governance only in, in in the precious fruitfulness of the ministration of the Word of God in our lives, in His leadership, only in those things will anything good come of our life. Because if we turn to the flesh, in it dwelleth no good thing. So I see in this passage His confession. And then I notice His conversion. I'm just going to mention this real quick in closing. Notice what was required. David looks at this man and says, I'll tell you what. Why don't you lead us down to this company? The fellow turns and looks at David and says to him, I'll, I'll take you to this company. What he's saying is, is the army of the Amalekites. He's saying, I'll take you there, but only on two conditions. One, you promise me that you will not kill me yourself. Number two, you promise me you won't give me back to my master, because if you give me back to him, he'll sure enough kill me. In other words, I see in this passage two things. One, I notice Brother Kim, What is required? There had to be a change in allegiance. Why did he say, you have to bring me down to this company? Can I just make this suggestion to you? David had planned on finding the Amalekites before he ever found this Egyptian. He didn't need this man to find the Amalekites. So why, Brother Charlie, did he say, you've got to bring us down to this company? He wanted this man to change his banner. He wanted this man to say, I'll prove to you, that's not my crowd anymore. I'm turning my back on that crowd. I want a new family. I want a new home. I want a new nation. When we look at the words of Ruth in the book of Ruth, I think it gives the clearest example of the commitment that the sinner makes when they come to God when she turns and looks at Naomi and says to her, listen, thy people will be my people. Thy God will be my God. In other words, I'm done with all that. Now, can I tell you something? Listen, I'm not suggesting that a person, when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, is never going to backslide, is never going to be tempted to go back, is never going to have uh, bad relationships or bad associations. Uh, If I was to tell you that, then that'd mean I'm not born again, because there's been times in my life that that's been me. But I am saying this, I don't think anybody comes to God with the intention of holding the devil's hand along the way. They don't come to him saying, I'm going to play both sides against the middle and maintain a foot in this camp and a foot in that camp. A person, you know why this fellow got spared that day? Because he's willing to say, yep, I'm done with the Amalekites. I'm an Israelite now. This is my people. This is my camp. This is my crowd. So I noticed there had to be a change in allegiance. But then I noticed a second thing. There had to be a change in dependence. Now what did it suggest? For the fact that he was willing to take them down to that company. I'll tell you who was probably down in that company. His master was probably there. Some people that could identify him were probably there. So what was he doing? Uh, Steve, by doing that, he was saying this, I believe David is going to win this war. And I'm trusting David to keep me safe. Sort of like in the New Testament, in the book of James, when it tells us that Rahab... Was justified when she received the messengers and then sent them out another way, it says she was justified by her works. What does it mean by that? Well, she she put her faith in the God of Israel when she received those men into her house. But she could have backed up on her commitment by turning around and saying, calling to the authorities, Brother Ken, and saying, Come and pick up these men and spare me instead, but she didn't. Instead, she let them go out. Why'd she do that? She said, I believe the God of Israel is going to be triumphant. And I want to be on the right side of this thing. In other words, we would say this. We see in this passage, in the requirements that are placed upon this man, one was that it was an inward expression of his faith, that there be a change in allegiance, and then there was an outward expression, that he changed his dependence. And his action was not what procured him the pardon of the king, but it was the expression of the real meaningful faith that he had that David was going to win this battle and that he would be spared. That's what a person's doing when they believe on the Lord. It's not their works that save them, but their works do evidence that there's been an inward change in their heart's condition. So I see what is required and then I see what's requested. I'm just going to mention this. I'm going to quit. I promise you. They tell me there's Danishes over there. And um, we better do something about them Danes. Britain still ain't never recovered, have they? We better do something about them Danes before it gets out of control over there. But I think about what he asked for. What did he want out of it? What did he want? You ever thought about that? When a person gets born again, what do they want? I think it would be reasonable to say they want to be pardoned and spared. I think that's what this fellow wanted. He looks at David and he says, as long as you promise not to kill me. In other words, he's saying, I want a new life. I want to live and I want to live in a different way. You know, that's what when a person gets born again, that's what they're that's what they're coming to God for. They want to live and they want to live in a different way. He he wanted a new life, but not only that, he wanted a new Lord. He said, "Promise you won't send me back to that old master. I still remember how he treated me. I remember his cruelness, I remember his unkindness, I remember his selfishness. And I don't want to go back to that old master. David, you seem like a pretty good master. Uh, will you be my master? Will you be my my Lord? Will you be the one that leads me? Will you be the one that protects me? And David, we don't know how the conversation went. We know that the very last verse in our text that we read, the Bible says that, that they went down to the camp. He went down with them to the camp. Evidently, David took him up on his offer. Evidently, David looked at him and said, Son, if all you want is to be spared and to have me as your Lord, I'll gladly do that for you. You know, that's what happens in your life and mine. When we got born again, we came to the Lord and said, I'm tired of this life. I want a new life. I want to live the way I've been living. I want to live a different way. And I want a new Lord. I don't want an overlord. I want a Lord. I want one that loves me, that cares for me. Can I ask you this question? Listen, I understand. I I meant to preach this this morning. We're preaching it tonight. So can I just make this statement in closing to you? How are you treating your Lord? The one that loved you. Are you being honest with Him about where you're at in your spiritual life? Are are you playing games with Him? Are you letting Him lead and govern and guide your life? Are you showing Him the reverence and respect that He deserves? What a shame, Brother Ken, it would have been if this Egyptian went on to cause David problems. Try to live his own way and do his own thing. Try to run his own life. I like to believe he never did that. We don't know. Heaven will reveal it if we care to know when we get there. I don't, I don't know, but I'll tell you how that story should have gone. It should have been that Egyptian brother Ken was the best servant David ever had. That's how it should have been. I don't know how it really was, but I know it should have been that that Egyptian was the best soldier the army of Israel ever saw. That he was the best servant that David ever had. That he was the most dedicated of any in the land. You know why? Because after all, he didn't belong there. But he had got there by, by the king's mercy. By the king's mercy. I wonder if we're being who we ought to be for the Lord tonight. If we're not, you know, we ought to commit to the Lord before we leave here that we're going to live the way that He desires for us to live. Let's bow together. Our heads bowed, our eyes closed, the musician will come and play. The altar's open. And if God's spoken to your heart, listen, don't wait for the first note. Just go ahead and obey the Lord. If you give the devil the next five, ten seconds, he may take the rest of the service from you. So don't give him that time. Give that time to the Lord by being obedient to Him. Father, bless this invitation. Pray your people get help in these next few moments. Lord, I love you. And I ask it in Jesus' name. With our heads bowed.